Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome back to another episode of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week, we're going to talk a little bit about pilots. Now, for every show that gets on the air, there's probably five or six other produced pilots that didn't. And for every produced pilot, there's probably 20 pilots that never got produced. So over the course of one development season, there are lots and lots of pilots and lots and lots of stories. And this is one of ours. This was a pilot that my partner David Isaacs and I wrote originally in the fall of 1980, and it was called Reporting from the White House, and it was about the White House press corps. We did it for ABC, one of the few pilots that we ever did for ABC, but at the time, it was an election year, and Jimmy Carter was running for re-election against Ronald Reagan. And we had this idea about doing something about the White House press corps. And what seemed really interesting to us was this. You had this group of people that were all together, and they were friends and colleagues, and they were also competitors, we thought what an interesting dynamic that was. And we just assumed that they all had contacts throughout the White House and they would be walking all through the White House talking to gardeners and maids and different people. They had all these different alliances and relationships and were scrapping around for information and interviews and that sort of thing. We thought, wow, this is really sort of an interesting area. Plus, we thought what might be really fun is to center the show on a new brash reporter and his ex-girlfriend, a relationship that broke up very badly, was with a young lady who is now the White House press secretary. So you had that dynamic going on along with the sexual tension. And at the time, as our prototype, because David and I always like to have somebody in our head that serves as our prototype for an actor so that we're both hearing the same voice. Well, we thought of this young, brash talk show host called David Letterman. 
And that was the actor who we envisioned to star in our show. A few years before this, David and I worked on MASH, and one of the things that we learned was the value of research. We spent Hours talking to doctors and nurses and corpsmen and patients and people in Korea. So we figured with this subject matter, we should do some research. And earlier in the 70s, I had worked at a radio station in Los Angeles called KMPC. And it was part of Golden West Broadcasters. There were a number of Golden West stations uh, up and down the West Coast, KSFO San Francisco, KEX Portland, KVI Seattle. And they had their very own White House correspondent, a gentleman by the name of Alan Leto. And Alan Leto, from time to time, would come to Los Angeles. At the time, he was covering Richard Nixon. And Nixon, of course, was going down to San Clemente, the Western White House, frequently. So Alan Leto would be at the station quite often, and I actually got a chance to know him. So I got in touch with Alan Leto, and I said, is it possible to get a press credential for a couple of days so that we can actually be a part of the press corps and see exactly what they do. And he said, okay, let me see what I can do. And he worked it out with Helen Thomas, who had been in the White House press corps since Adams, I believe. And so we got a chance to spend three days actually as part of the White House press corps. Also at the time, we made arrangements to interview various reporters who covered the White House. So David and I fly to Washington, D.C., and the first thing we do is meet with Bob Pierpoint of CBS News, and we met him at the Watergate Hotel. (laughs) How perfect is that? So he's explaining the job, et cetera, et cetera, and he said, you know who you should talk to? There was a young lady who was the, I think, assistant press secretary back in the Nixon era. Very smart. She's great. She's now working for CBS with us. Her name is Diane Sawyer. Why don't you call Diane Sawyer and see if you can get an interview with her? We said, great. So we finished the interview with Bob Pierpoint. We go back to the hotel, and David calls the home number for Diane that Bob Pierpoint had given her. And, and I'm listening, and, uh, and I see David go, uh, hello? And then his face turns bright red, and he's like, um, I, um, um, no, th- this is uh, D- D- David Isaacs, and he explains the situation that we're looking to interview her for an ABC pilot, and she said no and hung up. Well, here's the part of the conversation I didn't hear, but David did. Apparently, Diane thought her boyfriend was calling. She was expecting a call from her boyfriend. So when she picked up the phone... She said something to the effect, and believe me, I'm paraphrasing, and I'm sure this is probably factually wrong, but the gist of it is correct. It's like, hi, I'm naked. I just got out of the shower. uh, Hello, I'm David Isaacs, uh, TV writer. 
<laughs> you can understand her embarrassment and her desire not to meet us face to face. So no chance at meeting Diane Sawyer. Next day, we report to the White House and we get all of our badges and everything else. By the way, before we were cleared, we had to go through a security clearance and everything else. And that took about two, three weeks until we were finally cleared and able to go. And so we went into the White House press area and then we learned something very, very disturbing. Again, our idea was that all of these guys had free reign to move about the White House. And like I said, they had other contacts, etc. No, you cannot move from that area. You cannot walk down a hallway. You cannot just wander into the Rose Garden. No, everybody is in the press section and everybody moves as a unit If there is a press conference out in the Rose Garden, everybody as one moves out to the Rose Garden. So David and I are looking at each other and we're thinking to ourselves, you know, we're kind of fucked here because that's our whole series. I mean, what do we do if none of them can leave each other? We thought, well, okay, I guess we have to really deal with alliances and really focus the show on this relationship between the David Letterman character and the young press secretary. We have an interesting day there talking to these people and meeting some of these people, and it was interesting, the dynamics. There's one reporter in particular, at least back then. His name was Curtis Wilkie. And he worked for the Boston Globe. And for some reason, he was the man. Everybody kind of took their cue off of him. And he just seemed like this good old boy. You know, he didn't seem like any kind of intellectual. He was just this good old boy. So that was day one. And day two, Carter was going to go on a brief campaign trip. And we were going to follow And the trip was this. He was going to go from Andrews Air Force Base in Washington, D.C. to Dayton, Ohio, to speak in some downtown arena. And it was supposed to be a town hall format where people could ask him questions. Then we were going to fly to Philadelphia. And later that day, we were going to go to a house in like East Darby, Pennsylvania, And he was going to sit out in the backyard, was the leader of the free world. And again, there would be a a group of people all sitting on card chairs asking him questions. And then we would fly back to Washington. We would be back home like 8.30, 9 o'clock that night. So it was so strange getting up that morning and watching the Today Show. And during their news segment, they were laying out the itinerary for the president's trip that day. And they showed a shot of this suburban house out there in suburban Pennsylvania. David and I are looking at each other like, we're going to be there. (laughs) How surreal is that? We report to the White House and we hop on the press bus and we're part of the presidential motorcade that goes to Andrews Air Force Base and then we pile on the press plane. There's Air Force One and and there is a separate press plane. 
Okay, so here's something that I didn't know. The press plane always took off after Air Force One so that we could get photographs of the plane taking off. And the press plane always landed before Air Force One. We, like, caught up and passed them, or they, like, looped or something, so that we would be on the ground ready to go. And there was also one reporter from the pool, and it rotated between the reporters, who got to actually fly on Air Force One with the president. Should something happen, there was always one reporter there. So we fly to Dayton, Ohio, city I've never been to, take the presidential motorcade downtown to this arena. There's lots of people there. There was a section cordoned off for the press, and the president started answering questions and giving his speech and that sort of thing. And at one point, he had some catchphrase, something like, we're going to look into a world without nuclear power. I don't know, some catchphrase. But the minute the press corps heard that catchphrase in mass, they got up and scrambled out and left for the bus. And we, of course, uh, followed them. We didn't know what was going on. Apparently, they knew when he said that, he was wrapping it up, and they wanted to be on the bus ready to go and get the hell out of there as soon as possible. So now we go back to the Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, and we fly into Philadelphia. It is late afternoon, rush hour traffic, The presidential motorcade is going through downtown Philadelphia at 4.30, 5 o'clock. And we're right behind them. (laughs) We're just whizzing through. It's just great. We're going through red lights. Fantastic. But every street I would look down, there were like miles of cars that were stopped. I think some of those folks from October 1980 just now got home. Oh, my God. So we wind up in this house in East Darby, Pennsylvania, or wherever the hell it was. And remember, back then, nobody had cell phones. So what they did was they had a bank of telephones for these reporters to call in. And they nailed all of these phones onto this giant wooden board and they nailed the board to a tree in the front lawn. Now we go to the backyard and we walk along the side of the house And there was this very nice backyard. And like I say, there were card chairs set up for what looked like 50 or 60 people, probably handpicked. And we were cordoned off. There was a roped off area for the press. Now, somebody, one of the guests, maybe a few of the guests, made these homemade cookies. And there was this giant tray of homemade cookies. Well, the reporters saw these and just literally within a minute and a half, every cookie was completely gone. So out comes President Carter and he's 
sitting there in the backyard, and there's helicopters flying overhead, and you can see like a little wooden fence behind him leading to an alley where there were garbage cans. And again, it was surreal to see the president of the United States in this environment. And of course, for us, like, what are we doing here? Well, he said that catchphrase, and all of us just scrambled out of there, got right back on the bus, and then we headed for the Philadelphia airport. But before we took off, we assembled in a giant conference area where all of the reporters were typing out their stories and filing their stories for the day. So it was about a 45-minute period of time. And like I said, all of them were kind of wandering around Curtis Wilkie of the Boston Globe. And this guy, (laughs) this guy was a character. This guy would come on the plane and he had a bag with cans of beer, like six, seven cans of beer for the day. But he was the smartest. He was the most insightful. He was pretty much the dean of the White House press corps. And then poof, we're back in Washington, D.C. around 8.30 or 9 o'clock. The next day, we again show up. And this time, we get Oh, this was great. We we actually get a tour of the Oval Office. At the time, Carter was not in it. Uh, but we got a chance to, like, walk through the Oval Office and go through the West Wing. And we saw where the press secretary was and everyone else. And I'm here to say, if you've seen the show West Wing, it's pretty darn accurate. That certainly was the way it was back in 1980. Today, it's probably a freak show, but at least back then, there was some decorum. Then there was going to be a press conference, I remember, out in the Rose Garden, but David and I met Sam Donaldson. Sam Donaldson was the White House correspondent for ABC News back then, and he was a very, well, he still is, uh, outspoken, brash guy, And we had a great time with him. We were talking with him for like about an hour. And we're checking our watch. And, you know, this conference is supposed to start at 2 o'clock. And it's now 1.55. And all of the other reporters have wandered out onto the uh, White House lawn. And, like, we're still there. And we don't want to stop him, of course. But, uh, hey, we're going to miss this. And at about... uh, Oh, one fifty nine. he checks his watch. He says, oh, okay, let's get out there. And so we march out to the Rose Garden, and he stands right in front. And President Carter is standing at the microphone, basically waiting for him. And Donaldson gets out a little pad, gets out his pen, he's ready to go, looks up at President Carter and says, okay, go. <laughs> and President Carter did. So that was day three of our research assignment as part of the White House press corps. Okay, now we had to come home and actually write this script. And again, it was very difficult because most of the dynamics that we thought were inherent with the series 
did not exist. So we did a story about a number of reporters basically vying for an exclusive interview with the president, having to deal with the press secretary. We kind of got around that. Our thought was, yeah, it's a good pilot episode. What do we do for episode three? We're fucked. But we're not going to worry about that right now. We just want to write a good pilot. So we write the pilot and we get these notes from ABC. They were nervous about it. They did not want the show to be too political. Well, it's a show about the White House press corps. They did not want us to specify whether the president was a Democrat or Republican. They also did not want us to name the president. And we said, well, we understand that, but the president is going to be uh, fictional. No. Wait a minute. We can't even have a President Jones, something like that? No. You're not allowed to even call the president by name. And then we said, well, <laughs> uh, what do we do in terms of seeing the president? Because what I had hoped to do was use my father, who looked very presidential, and he would serve as the president of the United States. And if you've been in any kind of government building, much less the White House, the picture of the president is pretty much everywhere. We said, how do we deal with that? They said, just ignore it. No president. So we had to go back and do our second draft and take out the name of the president. And uh, it was it was just ridiculous. And we had what was supposed to be the scene of our David Letterman reporter talking to the president of the United States. And we had to just do it off camera voiceover and the questions couldn't be political. It was terrible. It was just terrible. Well, needless to say, we turn this in, ABC passes. Big surprise there. And then uh, a couple of months go by and at the time, HBO was kind of ratcheting things up and Michael Fuchs was running HBO and he read our pilot and thought, there was something interesting there. So David and I flew to New York and we met with Michael Fuchs. And he said, look, I want to do this show, but I want the opposite of ABC. I want it as edgy, as political, as satirical, as different as you could possibly make it. If this is a pilot that a broadcast network can air, I don't want it. I want it to be completely unique. And we went, okay. So we went back and following those instructions, we completely threw out the first pilot. I don't think there's a word of our original pilot in the HBO pilot. And we wrote this new, very edgy, very satiric pilot. And I may have told this part of the story before with uh, Lee Rich. We were doing this for a company called Lorimar, 
that's where we had a development deal. And Lorimar, at the time, was riding high on the strength of nighttime soap operas like Dallas and Knott's Landing. And the man who ran Lorimar was a very charismatic, mercurial guy, great salesman named Lee Rich. Well, Lee Rich reads our pilot, our HBO pilot, and hates it, despises it. So much so that he calls us into his office, tells us how much this pilot is a piece of shit, tells us that he's not even going to put a Lorimar cover on this piece of crap and basically sends us on our way, even though we said, this is what they asked for. He's, I don't care. This is just fucking awful. Then we get a call from our agent about 15 minutes later saying, what happened in that meeting? Because Lorimar wants to get out of your development deal. They hated it that much. They wanted to fire us from our development deal. Well, we explained to our agent what happened and she had seen the the script and liked it very much and said, okay. And so she called Lorimar and said, well, they have six months left on the deal. If you just pay them off for the six months, they'll leave. Otherwise, they're going to show up every day. They haven't done anything wrong. And of course, Lorimar then backed off and said, no, 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 no. We thought they were unhappy, you know. And uh, and then the other part of this story, which again, I might've told was that night we had to go to a Lorimar cocktail party. It was mandatory. And there was Lee Rich again. And uh, and we see Lee Rich and you figure, oh, my God, how awkward is this? And he sees us and it's, boys, how are you? Have some shrimp. Can I get you a drink? It's as if <laughs> the morning never happened. But then again, that is show business. Shortly thereafter, we did leave Lorimar uh, to produce a show called Cheers. I think that was probably a good decision on our part. And uh, and Lorimar then brought on other writers to rewrite our draft and turn it into something else. And I think that got produced and aired. I don't know. I never really saw it. But that is just one example of a TV pilot and the highs and lows that you go through. And that will do it for this week. Our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Bruce and Jason Miller, Howard Hoffman, and John Wolford. If you want to get in touch with me, just write me, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. If you haven't already, please subscribe. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hollywood.